our truth in. Help us, Lord, to evaluate our lives against your truth and to align ourselves with your purposes. Lord, teach us, shape us, that we might be passionate followers of the Lord Jesus. For we pray in his name. Amen. We've entitled this message this morning, When God Says No. When God Says No. We want to do something and the Lord says no. It's not going to happen. Just a quick summary. This is where we're up to. Israel is now a newly united country under a new king. God is now at the centre of this new kingdom. We saw that last week with the ark being moved to the central main city in Jerusalem. And this morning we're going to look at the fact that God promises now a stable monarchy much like we have enjoyed in our country for the last, what is it, 50 plus years? Longer than that, 60 plus years. Over 60 years we've had one queen ruling over us. It provides a sense of stability. Um, So Israel will have that. For the very first time there will be a succession, a family line. Um, And that's through God's promise to David. Having mentioned 50, it reminds me, I forgot to tell you, that Hazel and... Selwyn Dickfoss celebrated 50 years of marriage yesterday. And I don't know where they are either. They're here. Congratulations, guys. They had uh, a lovely lunch and all the family together and celebrating, getting ready for the next 50. You are continuing on, aren't you, together? Yeah. yeah. That's what I ask my wife every anniversary. Do you still want to do this? He hits me and says yes. What's David's desire? <clears throat> Next slide. Well, he's in a situation, chapters, the beginning of chapter 7 tells us that there's a period of peace. After the king was settled in his palace, the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. If you go forward one chapter to chapter 8, probably chapter 8 happened before chapter 7, historically, chronologically. The chapter 8 outlines for us that wherever David went, north, south, east, west, northwest, south, east, everywhere he went, all the countries he uh, were associated with or on the boundaries of Israel, he dominated them. He, if he fought battles, he won them. He subdued those nations and they were now paying him tribute. And so all around him was at peace. And That's what chapter 8 is demonstrating for us and it's in the midst of that time at peace that David is now sitting in his palace and wondering what he ought to do. What do kings get to think about when they've got nothing else to do? Well, we know from Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, he, he, uh, in a time of peace, used to wander around the top of his palace and look over mighty Babylon and, and praise himself about this is mighty Babylon that I have built. And then God humbled him through judgment. David doesn't do that. David is not a man who is filled with his own self-importance. He's not a man who is highly proud, who's not, I am the king. He's rather a very humble servant of the Lord. This is the good phase of his life. He knows that God is his king and that he is simply the Lord's servant. But David's situation in this time of peace, he then has a desire, an overwhelming desire. It suddenly occurs to him, here he is sitting in, living in this wonderful palace He's a country boy. God took him from the sheepfolds around Bethlehem, from a small village, 
He was a country lad whom God has chosen and who is now made king and now he's living in the capital city and he's on the north shore and he's in the biggest house there. And in the midst of that, he starts to think, you know, it's not right that I live in the midst of all of this luxury and wealth and splendour that outwardly people notice me. Whereas the ark of God is in a tent, a humble tent. It's the tent that he had provided before. So he's done this before. He's provided a location or a shelter for the ark of God. He did that. And now he's thinking, I think God should be more visibly honoured. He wants to glorify God. He wants to exalt God. The desire in his heart is a good one. And Nathan, his mate, this is the first time we're introduced to Nathan the prophet, but we'll get to know him in coming weeks. Nathan says to him... um, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it. Sounds like a good thing to do. But Nathan's only operating out of human judgment, out of common sense. He hears David's dream and expectation and encourages him in it. He didn't pray about it. wasn't spiritually discerning at this point about it. And David's motivation is certainly, it is both good, it's gracious, and it's godly. It's not self-driven, it's not ego-driven or anything like that because 2 Chronicles chapter 6 tells us that God comes and says what you are thinking in your heart is good 2 Chronicles 6 about verse 8 or 9 there's nothing wrong with his heart motivation David was wanting to glorify and exalt the Lord, it was gracious because he was wanting to give to God not to get from God and it was godly because he wanted to see God exalted God glorified, that was his motivation But then as we go on and read it, we find that the Lord came to Nathan that night. It's interesting, isn't it? The Lord came to Nathan, not to David. I guess it's Nathan who needs the correction and eventually Nathan gets the message and he is to deliver that um, back to David. And David is under no misunderstanding that it's certainly the Lord who is speaking to him through his servant, Nathan. Just push the pause button. One of the things that we ought to learn from this is whatever desires we have in our hearts, before we do them, before we exercise them, even when they're good, gracious and godly, we've got to check with God. Is this your will? Is this what you want done? We ought not to simply steam ahead on our own thinking, our own planning. We need to check with God. How do you do that? Well, you check it with the Bible. You check it with godly counsellors. You check your conscience. You check your heart and make sure it's right with God. You're not driven by any other way you check the circumstances that are going on if you're in any doubt at all I've taught this a few times so I'm going to just say it this morning and if you want more detail come and have a chat the Bible says that our heart is wicked desperately wicked it deceives us we can easily con and trick ourselves we think we're doing good things and right things and right motivations but our heart is so sneaky and so tricky you can't trust it not by itself, we are fallen creatures. But now because we've become followers of the Lord Jesus and we have the Spirit of God living within us, the Bible gives us very clear instructions about God's will. What's God's will for us? Well, it's God's will for us to be saved, to know the Lord Jesus personally. It's God's will for us to be filled with the Holy Spirit, not to be drunk with wine, but to be filled with his Spirit. It's God's will for us to be sanctified, to be made holy. It's God's will for us to be uh, serving him, using our gifts and being available to him. And it's God's will for us sometimes to suffer for him. When all five of these things are in place, when I am saved and I acknowledge Jesus Christ to be my Saviour and my Lord, 
when I am filled with his spirit and I'm under his control and direction, when there is um, no unconfessed sin in my life and I am serious about being godly and being holy and endeavouring to be Christ-like in all my words and thoughts and behaviours, when I am serving the Lord to the best of my ability and when I am prepared to stand up for him and if necessary that will involve suffering, when those things are true in my life, then who's controlling my heart? He is. And Psalm 37 then says that if you trust in the Lord, if you devote yourself to the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. So don't trust your heart by itself. But fulfil these things. Make him Lord of your life. Make, uh, make sure the Spirit is controlling you. You're being sanctified. You're serving and you're prepared unashamedly to stand up for him. Then he is the one who is directing you and he will put dreams, ideas, goals into your mind, into your heart but you need to check them, like David does here. So God comes to Nathan and gives his response in various phases. Verses 4 to 7, um, God says to Nathan, go and tell my servant. So there's a very clear understanding that he is God, go tell my servant. Tell him that I am pleased with the honour and I'm pleased with his heart. But the answer is no. Thanks, but no thanks. God gently corrects David. And I want you to notice David's response to this this morning. Before we get to that, God's ongoing response is verses 8 to 9. He says, This is what I have done so far. I took you from the country, from the sheep, from being a shepherd, and I have made you ruler from the paddocks to the palace, if you like. I have been with you and I have given you victory, protection. I will make your name great, like all of the others. I will make you popular and prominent. That's what God promises. This is what I have done. And then he goes on to say very clearly, these are the two things, verses 10 and 11, that I will do. I will give you a place that Israel will have a land to settle in and they'll be established and secure. And David, you wanted to build me a house? Well, actually, it's the reverse. I'm going to build you a house. Not a bricks and mortar house, but a dynasty. I'm going to establish your family. You want to build me a house in this world. My greater purpose is I want to build a new world with a spiritual house in it and I'm going to do it through your family line. For years, David didn't know why God said no. He received this message, but in the book of Chronicles, he finds out years later that one of the reasons, 1 Chronicles 22, one of the reasons that God did this was David was a man of war. He was a warrior. And God wanted a man of peace to build the actual physical temple, to build his house, Solomon. So here is David who receives a negative answer and no response from God, no request denied, and gives this amazing promise, verses 12 to 17. It's called the Davidic Covenant. God says to him, this is what I've done for you, this is what I'm going to do, and this is what else I'm going to do for you, and it's way off into the future. Now David is not motivated, what's in this for me? But rather it's a clear indication his heart is clearly committed to God and wanting to see God glorified. So God reveals to him, this is what I'm going to do. After you're dead, after you're gone, you're resting with your fathers, then your seed after you, God says, I'll raise up your offspring and he will succeed. They'll come from your own body. Who is this? Well, think firstly, think Solomon. So let's read it in that context. 
because he certainly partially fulfills this covenant. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring to succeed you, Solomon, who will come from your own body through Bathsheba, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. He is. He builds the temple. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod of men and with the floggings inflicted by men, but my mercy or my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul. Verse 16, Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now Solomon certainly fulfills that, partially and initially. That Solomon does rule, Solomon does build the temple. That God's mercies did not depart from him even though Solomon got into a whole mess of trouble. 1 Kings chapter 11 and verses 12 to 13. This is um, a sad chapter which is evaluating uh, Solomon's life. Uh, The Lord says this. The Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude and you haven't kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of your, your father David... I will not do it in your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Um, Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So God keeps his word. God keeps his promise. And even though Solomon was sadly disobedient um, and drifted from God's covenant not keeping it faithfully God's mercy did not depart from him and then chapter 15 of 1 Kings even more clearly it's another king this time it's um, through David's son Absalom Uh, this particular king Abijah committed all the sins that his father had done before him his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his forefather had been nevertheless for David's sake The Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by raising up a son to succeed him and by making Jerusalem strong. Listen to this. For David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's commands all of the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. There is this ongoing theme through the Old Testament that this covenant that God entered into with David that God was going to keep it because it was God who signed the contract. It's God who came up with this idea. It's partially fulfilled through Solomon and following kings. It is ultimately and fully, completely fulfilled through the Lord Jesus, King David's greater son. When Jesus comes, God fulfills all of the Old Testament promises that he had given to his people. Jesus is the son of David who will reign on the throne of David. Isaiah the prophet says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. We know those texts from Christmas time, don't we? Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 31 and following. 
the angel says to Mary, uh, you will be with child and give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. When God gave this promise to David, through Nathan, to David, the Lord is ultimately talking about his son who was to come into the world. So now let's read it again, but this time think Jesus. And there's just one little troubling phrase in it. When your days are over, David, and you rest with your fathers, I'll raise up, for you, raise up your offspring to succeed you. He will come from your own family line, from your own body, Jesus, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, spiritual house, us. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. Um, when he does wrong, well, Jesus never sinned. But Jesus took the sin of the world upon himself. When he does that, I will punish him with a rod of men and with the floggings inflicted by men. But my mercy and my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul. Your house, the one Jesus built, and your kingdom will endure forever. Your throne will be established forever. That's an amazing promise that God gives to David. This ongoing lineage, this monarchy, ultimately to be filled in the king who is to come. God's larger purpose, um, which we'll come to in a moment and down in verse 23, is that he's going to bring glory to his name through establishing his people, us, being involved in his kingdom. Just as an aside and very interestingly, later on the prophets will also talk about this and Jeremiah talks about another covenant. He talks about a new covenant that's going to come, Jeremiah 31. And interestingly, the new covenant is what we call the New Testament. Testament means covenant. It's the new covenant. The New Testament, the new covenant, begins with Matthew 1 verse 1. Gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. He is the one who was to come. And the book of the New Testament ends with Revelation, chapter 22, verse 16, which also talks about Jesus as being the son of David who will reign on his throne forever. The New Testament begins and ends by saying Jesus is the son of David, referring to this significant Old Testament text that he is the one who will reign on the kingdom of God forever. Well... We haven't read it yet, but what's David's response to all of this? Notice something. He has this desire in his heart, David, and he shares it with Nathan, and Nathan says, that's fine, go ahead. God comes to Nathan and says, that's not my will. Tell David the answer's no. But tell him this, this is what I'm going to do. This is my wider purpose. This is what's going on. When Nathan goes back to David, tells him the message, David doesn't thank Nathan. David doesn't glorify Nathan. David doesn't talk to Nathan about it. David goes to God. And it's worth noting that Nathan, a prophet, is just like a preacher, that he hears preachers and pastors and prophets and everybody else hear from God and deliver God's message to God's people. When God's people hear the message... It's not to the prophet, the pastor or the preacher that you thank, but God. You go to him. You thank the Lord for what he has said through his servant. It's God-centred. Make sense? 
Now, of course, I'm quite happy for you to come to me and thank you for what you said this morning. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, I'm human. We all need encouraging. But the primary purpose is not to thank me or us. It's to thank the Lord and to respond to him. That's an important point to get. What's David's response? Well, note this. Verse 18. Then David went in and sat before the Lord. His posture. He's sitting. And it's not a bad thing to do because we're about to read it that whenever God says no to you, it's a good time for you to take a look at your life and that's what David does and even to count your blessings and David certainly does that. David goes in, he sits before the Lord and he prays a magnificent prayer. Our theme for this year is to pause and pray. Well, you should study this chapter and this second half of it to hear David at prayer. It's like John 17 with the Lord Jesus praying. You're listening in to somebody else pouring out their heart to God and he certainly does. He prays from his heart. It's not just fancy words. Who am I? Sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this is not enough in your sight, O Sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. Is this your usual way of dealing with man, Lord? This is amazing. What more can David say to you? Isn't that interesting? He calls himself by his own name. What more can David say to you? Not what more can I say to you? But he names himself, just like a little child referring to himself third person. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant. For the sake of your word and according to your will you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great you are, sovereign Lord. See, David doesn't spit the dummy. He's not filled with his own self-importance. He doesn't... Well, if you're not going to let me do what I want to do, then I'm not going to play anymore doesn't pick up his ball and run away. doesn't have the attitude that I want to serve you, I want to do this, I want to be in the limelight, I want everybody to notice. God says no. doesn't pout, doesn't take his ball and go home. Rather, his heart is captured by God. He is humble, he is submissive, he is accepting. That's the response that we are to have whenever God says no to us. Often when the Lord does say no to us, it's simply him, well, it could be discipline, It could be him saying, no, not yet, get this thing right in your life. Many times it's no because he's redirecting us, because he's got a much bigger purpose in mind. We go through the process of disappointments, of not getting what we particularly want. But we need, like David, humble ourselves before God, be accepting and to trust him to work things out. There is no one like you, Lord. There is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people, the ones you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people Israel as your very own, O Lord, and have become their God. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised, so that your name will be great forever. Then men will say, The Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. O Lord Almighty, God of Israel, 
You have revealed this to your servant, saying, I'll build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to offer you this prayer. I wouldn't be asking for it otherwise, but because you said it, that's why I'm talking like this. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your words are trustworthy. And you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, O Sovereign Lord, have spoken. And with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. (coughs) David goes before God, having heard a denial of the request, but heard this amazing promise that God has given to him. And he goes before him as a servant. David's attitude is not, I am so great that God gives me gifts. That's not his attitude. His attitude is the other way around. It's very God-centred. God is so great that he even gives people like me gifts. He humbles himself before God. He emphasises the greatness of God. And as I said, he doesn't respond by pouting and running away. He simply wants to accept and to glor- accept God's will and to glorify him. The prayer that he prays is not passive. <clears throat> well, Lord God, your will be done. I'm not too fussed either way. Yeah, do what you want to do. It's not passive or disengaged, nor is it pushy. God, let me tell you what I want you to do. But it's a bold prayer. God, you said, and so therefore I'm asking. You see, the promises of God often are linked with other purposes of God. That God gives us his promises, but just because God promises something doesn't mean we're going to receive it unless we complete the transaction, unless we appropriate it. God promises something, like he has David here. We are to believe and to pray. God hears and he answers and we receive. If we do not ask in prayer what God has promised for us, then God's promises will be left unclaimed. This is not just a statement of what God will do, independently of anybody's reaction. It's a promise of what God will do through his people and he invites us to join him in the process to work with God transforming people into passionate followers of Jesus and we do that by pausing and praying reading his word there's a promise of forgiveness if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins but we have to confess we have to pray and ask for God's forgiveness and if we don't we miss the promise of forgiveness there's a promise of peace Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God that passes all human understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Promise of peace. But you get it when you pray it. God promises, and we need to appropriate the promises of God. It's a promise of guidance. Psalm 32, verse 8, I'll instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Promise of growth. What God has started, God's going to finish. Philippians 1.6 or even a wonderful promise of help to receive mercy and grace in time of need. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we might find mercy and find grace to help in time of need. His promises reveal his purposes. So as you read the word of God, look for the promises. When you find the promises, pray the promises. God loves it because it honours him. He is very pleased when we take him at his word. That's exactly what David is doing here. Lord, 
I have courage to pray this prayer because you said. And he even says in here, Lord, do your will. Do what you said. And the foundation of all of this in verse 28, Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your words are trustworthy. And you have promised to do these good things to your servant. That's the foundation. He is God. He keeps his word. And we're to take him at his word. That's called trust or faith or belief. We take him at his word. To not do so is to be calling God a liar, that we think it's a bit sus. So in this chapter, central to the Old Testament, we have um, David with a godly desire, but it wasn't God's will. God said no. David's response to when God said no was to humble himself and to accept that. In fact, after this story, David goes on. Even though he won't be the one who will build the temple, the physical temple for the ark, he knows that his son will. That's how he understands this. So what does he do? He doesn't sit back and he doesn't do nothing. God's got a different way. And when God's got a different way, he expects me to cooperate. He expects me to be supporting it. Even though it's not what I wanted to do, I do want to join him in what he's doing. It's an old, old saying, and it's not part of our world anymore, but the old saying was, if you can't go down the mine, you can hold the ropes. If you can't go down the mine, at least you can hold the ropes. You get the idea. Though you may want to be doing that, and you can't. Nonetheless, you can still be supportive and involved by holding the ropes. That's exactly what David did. 1 Chronicles 22, he starts collecting all of the materials to go into the building of the temple. In chapter 28 of 1 Chronicles, he actually designs the plans and he shows Solomon. So while he doesn't build the temple, he does everything to prepare for it so that his son Solomon can successfully achieve this goal. David was a man who had an amazing relationship with God. So the question, one of the questions for us this morning is, do we? Do we know God? through David's greatest son, Jesus. That's why he came into the world. We are estranged from God because of sin. We can be reconnected with God through a relationship with Jesus. The Bible is full of these wonderful promises, forgiveness of sins, restoration of relationship, adopted into his family and his kingdom, where we will reign with him, Jesus, forever. His kingdom is lasting forever and you need to be part of his kingdom. Have you got a dream or a goal? And God, uh, the doors aren't opening and it's not coming to fruition. Fruition. I'll uh, patiently check it out. Is this God's will? Is this God's intention for my life? What is God doing? And what does he want me to do? For Danica this morning, you've heard about her, that God's in the process of wanting to save people. She's joining him in that mission. You've heard about that this morning and you have the opportunity to join her, to support her so that you're indirectly involved with her in all of those gospel conversations. The Father will reward you accordingly. You're linked arms with her, just like we link arms with our missionaries. Your names are recorded next to them and their work that they're doing. If we can't go, we can support. Like David, we need to develop our prayer life where we see God is not only a great God, and he is, but he's also an incredibly good God who is kindly disposed towards us and that is ultimately demonstrated through the person of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray to him.
in his name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you through Jesus, the son of David, the promised one, the king who will reign forever. We come to you in his mighty name. We come before you, Lord, and we ask that you might direct the thoughts and dreams and goals of our hearts, that you might guide us. It's like he guided David through Nathan, so Lord, guide us through your word, through your people, by your spirit, through circumstances. Direct our lives, order our steps. But our goal, Lord, for you to be glorified. For you are the king and we are your servants and we want to obey you. We want to love you. We want to see you exalted, not us. We want to see your plan, your greater purposes achieved. So, Lord, use us. Thank you for the opportunities you placed before us. Help us to take those opportunities to see your purposes come to fruition. So Lord, here we are, your people, before you, available. Speak to us, direct us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.